A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And he said, oh, he could not pay. His Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him by the throat, and he said, pay what you owe. And then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went, and he threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, well, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. You should not have, you should have, you should have, you should not have had, mer- uh, sorry, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slaves as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, my heavenly Father, will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of God. When I first looked at the text for today, that text for my last sermon, I thought, you're kidding me. No, not one of those parables of Matthew that ends with the threat of eternal torture, please. The kingdom of God is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Every one of those things hurts me. Thanks. I mean, of course we know Jesus is telling a parable, not revealing facts about God as if God is like this king who appears to be generous and forgiving one moment, but as soon as his servant acts in a way that seems ungrateful, the king completely changes, and his anger is so worked up that he hangs the 
worker over to be tortured, torture. I mean, if God was that king and we were those slaves and the kingdom is about settling accounts, that is a nightmare. We'll, we'll all be tortured eternally. But that's not generally where the story is about Jesus born into the world to reveal that God is not a God of violence and retribution, but rather radical mercy. That's not where those stories generally lead. So of course we aren't going to read this as if you can equate God with this king. But, so why then would Jesus end the story by saying, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart? I mean, if Jesus didn't mean to say that God is a bastard, totally unreliably merciful, who might make a grand gesture of forgiving you once, but watch out because if you fail to forgive as you were forgiven, it's a torturer for you. If Jesus didn't want to suggest that, maybe he should have been a little more careful with the words coming out of his mouth. Because these sort of things, they have a way of leaving a pretty strong impression. And there's more than one of these parables in Matthew that end with violent consequences for those who fail to behave well. The fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torture. Matthew is the only gospel writer who has these particular endings, so it may have been him editorializing, but it's hard for me to see how his editorializing doesn't undermine the revelation of the grace of God. But I probably just don't understand something. I don't know if everybody else saw this a hundred times on their social media this week, or if it's just something spreading in the pastor circles, but I saw this quote a hundred times on my social media this week. 2,000 years from now, people won't understand the difference between butt dial and booty call. <laughs> and this is exactly why the Bible is hard to understand. I like that quote along with hundreds of other pastors, probably because we all had to preach on this passage. And it's a reminder that there's a vast cultural divide between first century Palestine and 21st century USA. We don't have teachers that walk around in sandals telling parables. We don't have kings like they did or taxes like they did. We have cars and potato chips and Disney World and televisions and capitalism and smartphones. So I don't know what Matthew was doing with this particular parable. But I believe Jesus reveals that God is a God of infinite mercy, and I'm sticking with that. And of course, Jesus and Matthew wouldn't have been familiar with American evangelical literalist methods of biblical interpretation. Maybe if they could have predicted the rise of biblical literalism in the 20th century, they would have chosen a different words. They would have chosen different words. But maybe not. I don't know. Torture is an impactful word. Eternal fire is a strong image. And maybe they wanted the impact. Jesus starts this passage by answering Peter's question about forgiveness. How many times should I forgive? And Jesus says pretty much infinitely. You should forgive, you should forgive not one time, 
Not seven times, but 70 times seven don't count. So why to illustrate that would he tell a story where a king forgives one time? Why end with this phrase referring to the torture, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive? My best guess, maybe he wanted to convey how utterly crucial forgiveness is. That it is so important that there is no kingdom of God without it. The setting of the parable is clearly not the religious subculture that Jewish people lived in. It's a Roman or it's a pagan. It's, it's the empire guys conducting a corrupt and exploitative taxation system. It's surprising that the undoubtedly corrupt overlord in such a context would forgive the debt of the servant who owed him so much money. It's surprising that after he'd been freed from that debt, that he wouldn't do the same for the guy under him who owes him so much less. It's not surprising that the fellow workers are appalled by his actions. I'm totally with them. That guy seems like a total jerk. Still, I can't believe it when the king who I thought might be merciful throws him into prison to be tortured. When I hear that story, when I read that story, I don't feel warm and merciful. I'm judging that guy. I'm judging the king. I'm even judging the colleagues a little for being snitches. Maybe that's something I need to see about myself. I've been preaching at the House of Mercy for 28 years, and still, the mercy is not always flowing out of me like an infinite stream. The world in the parable runs on taxes, the payment of loans and debts and money. The kingdom of God runs on mercy. The kingdom of God is like this story, maybe in that if we don't forgive, the mercy machine doesn't work. You have to forgive. As we forgive, the forgiveness spreads. It's forgiveness that keeps the mercy going. The mercy is crucial. But it doesn't seem to flow naturally, at least for me. I mean, I read the intro to the parable. I know it's going to be about the importance of mercy. And I judge once. That guy is such an asshole. Twice. I get where the co-works are coming from, but they didn't have to go tattling to the king. I judge thrice. The king is a bastard. And I keep judging. I judge Matthew. What's with adding all the threatening endings? I judge Jesus. I judge evangelicals. I judge and I judge as if I know better than all of them. Reading this makes me realize how much I need mercy. The first servant didn't forgive even after he'd been forgiven so much, and neither do I. How can I be so bad? So then I judge myself. I need mercy. 28 years preaching mercy and look at me. 
I think it's hard to let go of judgment. It seems important to align myself with the good. I mean, don't get me wrong, I know I'm bad-ish. But I want to love and give and try to be part of repairing the planet. I might not always be successful, successful, but aren't I sort of on the good side? When I read this story at first, I think I'm on the side of the merciful. I believe in mercy. But wow, how readily I just slide into the not mercy. I'm pretty sure that's a recognition that I'm going to have to come to over and over again. But I believe, and I'm sorry if this sounds corny, but I believe that Jesus is calling a different sort of me into being. A way of being that is so much more aware of the together. Toward even a sort of dissolution of the me that can stand separately over against anything, anyone. I think it's really hard to give up the idea that we're good or goodish, at least better than some. Surely I wouldn't be like the servant in the parable who re receives so much mercy and then goes out and has none. I might be bad, but I'm not that bad, but I am. I'm complicit in the not mercy, in the judgment. I need the mercy. It's unsettling. Mercy always is. It's hard to give up the desire to be better than them, the QAnon conspiracy theorists, Lauren Boebert, Vladimir Putin. And maybe that impulse to want to be better helps make us better people, or maybe it keeps us from living in the mercy. I'm not sure. I know mercy isn't like, my friend was mean to me, so I have to forgive her. It's so much more. It's where a part of we contribute to this culture that is based on violence and division, based on us versus them. But God is opening up, bringing into being a kingdom created by love and fed by mercy, where there is no us against them, where we're all in it together. But it's somehow so ingrained in us, well, we live in the United States of capitalism where individualism is a guiding principle. It's so ingrained in us that we are these singular individual entities, like separated by our skin from the rest of the world. But that is a complete delusion. We are, in what we think of as ourselves, a whole community of cells interacting. And 50% of those cells aren't even human. They're viruses, bacteria, fungi, they're different species, without which we would die in a day or two. I am all these things that are not me that make it possible for me to be alive and well. There's no action in our body that we didn't breathe or eat or drink in from the planet. To think of ourselves as separate from each other or the whole biomass of the planet is just not accurate. Not scientifically or spiritually 
or in any way at all. And I kind of think that understanding that can go a long way towards glimpsing how deep and wide the mercy is. But the structures of our culture resist recognizing that inextricable entanglement. Maybe because it seems like we need to separate ourselves to save ourselves. There's a destructive force in the world that we must not be a part of. To survive, we have to set ourselves over against that. Join in communion against the destruction, destructive forces in the world. But I think that the mercy might dissolve all those distinctions. We are all part of it all. That's an unsettling thing to believe. It's a sort of dissolution of the ground we might have thought was holding us up. Letting go of the life raft we were clinging to, to keep our heads above the water, that I must be one of the good-ish raft, I must be at least a little bit better. But what if that just isn't true? We're not better, we're fortunate. The circumstances of your birth, your birth order, who your parents were, where you were born, the love you received, or education, or your particular psychology, or you're not living in poverty, or not having a particular mental or physical illness, kept you from the circumstances that might have led you to murder, or hate, or abuse drugs, or people. It's actually not because you're particularly virtuous that you're capable of kindness, or of not being homophobic, or misogynist, or a Republican, or a socialist, if you're coming from a different angle. But it's very hard to let go of the idea that you are who you are because you tried harder than other people. I mean, I know some of you dug yourself out of places that you needed to get out of, and it was hard and it's beautiful, and it's good. But it doesn't mean you won't keep sliding into the not mercy. I think maybe we have to let go of anything that allows us to believe we're on the side of the good over against them. Recognizing that we're all caught up in something that we all need to be freed from. And we do know this. We know our interconnectedness in so many ways. I mean, like, think of Derek Chauvin. Of course we know that he's not a lone perpetrator of racist injustice. And we know that the fact that he is in jail doesn't rid Minneapolis of racism. Even though we didn't hold George Floyd down on the concrete, we recognize that we are part of the system of racism that murdered him. And mercy isn't George Floyd's family choosing not to prosecute Derek Chauvin. It's more like the recognition that we have a part in the crime and God still likes us. And Derek Chauvin still wants us to be a part of the kingdom and will go to great lengths to get us there.
We're all in this together. We're all responsible to all for everything. We're inextricably linked. And there's a wildness to that mercy for sure. It's really good news that the kingdom of God runs on mercy. But it's possible we resist it because we think we need to hold on to the idea that we don't need it as much as Derek Chauvin or Harvey Weinstein or Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it's not the kind of thing that you can just squeeze out the little bit that you think you need. The floodgates are open and the mercy may knock us off our feet. We may be scraped and bruised as we're carried away by that torrent. Actually, we may go under. When we let go of the life raft we're clinging to to hold us up, like dying and rising, carried by the mercy into the mercy. Let go. I'm letting go. I mean, I'll probably have to do that again and again. But I am so grateful for the opportunity to commune this day with all of you, broken and redeemed.